Now, those of you who are not new, I'm going to bore you to tears with the story you heard me before. Our, our Bellevue store had about six or eight monkeys in this. They were filthy monkeys, too. They were 50 bucks. They were cheap, awful monkeys. And the kids would say, you know, what are the monkeys doing? And you'd be, oh, my God, you know. And every now and then a mother would say, what are those monkeys doing? I, oh, lady. <laughs> everybody, welcome to another episode of the NordyPod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. Before we get started, I want to take a second to make sure you all know how you can actually be part of the show. Sure, a large part of what we do here is to try to give you a glimpse of Nordstrom from the inside out. But we also want to use the Nordy Pod to learn about and share how Nordstrom looks through your eyes. We want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. Have we made you a lifelong customer? Or have you sworn to never step foot in one of our stores ever again? Give us a call and leave a voicemail and you may end up on a future episode of the Nordy Pod. So grab a pen. Here's the number, 206 594-0526 or send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com to be part of the conversation. Okay, let's get on with the show. In this episode, you're going to have the treat of listening to one of the most fabled stories in our past, told by my cousin Jamie, and it's the famous monkey story. John was panicked. Uh, he calls my dad, his brother, and says, I'm in a real bind. I ordered some monkeys for the store opening, for the store opening and, and the monkey company did not deliver <laughs> his monkeys. Uh, and could you bring some monkeys over? But before we hear that, I want to introduce you to an inspiring individual, someone I've been super happy to get a chance to know and proud to be able to work and partner with, the founder and CEO of Viore Clothing, Joe Cudlaw. Joe Cudlow's journey is a prime example of what it takes to chase down your passion, especially when everyone around you is telling you you're crazy. Joe left his high-level position at a small but successful business to go start a new one in an extremely competitive and unpredictable industry. Against the advice of his close friends and family, Joe felt that he needed to do this for himself. Growing up as an athlete, he never felt the opportunity to express his wildly creative spirit lying beneath the surface. But when he dipped his toe into the fashion world, he knew it was where he belonged. Joe shares some great insight about endurance and hard work that I think we could all apply to our own lives. So let's get into it. Hey, look at Joe. I'm so happy to have you on, on the podcast. I'm, I'm such a big fan of your brand, Viore, and I think you really have such a fascinating story and it's it's just a pleasure to be able to to talk to here today no likewise i'm a big fan of nordstrom always have been and was honored when uh, when you asked all right so far so good 
So, you know, <laughs> Joe, I, I think what's interesting, first of all, your brand, while super successful and growing like crazy, is not a household name either. So I, th- I think what's going to be interesting is, you know, get a little background about how you entered into this business. Yeah. So I grew up on a little island called Vashon Island and um, went to school in Bellevue, went to high school. And then I came down to San Diego for college, went to USD, played lacrosse. I was a typical kind of jock as a kid, played tons of sports. And, you know, I, I got this unique opportunity. My friends still like to poke fun at me, but I got this opportunity to model when I graduated. And I had this summer free. So I was either going to go get a job waiting tables or doing something. Or, you know, I got this unique opportunity to go to Italy and work in the fashion industry as a model. And that was my first time being exposed to the world of apparel and design and spent two years traveling the world, working for all these different designers and um, doing the fashion shows. I would, I would rotate from Milan to New York. I did a lot of work for Dolce & Gabbana, did some work with Versace. It was a very interesting time of my life. And I was always just so inspired by watching these designers build collections and build product. I, I don't think I would have ever ended up here if I hadn't gone and had that experience. Cause it, you know, what does a guy that grew up playing football and lacrosse in, in Seattle know about fashion? So I have a question, you were talking about the sports thing. Cause I, I grew up playing sports and everything. And it's always interesting to me to see people that applied so much energy and passion around playing sports but many of them had a hard time converting that to the next stage of their life, whatever that was that interests them and, and apply the same amount of energy and passion. And, you know, you seem like a guy that you were able to turn the page and devote a lot of personal energy and interest in something that, you know, really lit a spark for you. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of sports. That's the gift that it gives us. And yeah, you know, everybody has their own path. But for me, you know, I was always the guy that, you know, maybe didn't have like the best God given talent, but I, I would work really, really hard. And that was how I excelled in sports was just outworking people. But I, I definitely took so many of those lessons and applied them to entrepreneurship. I think, you know, the classic lessons of failing and getting back up and working closely with your team and aligning people behind a vision and creating that energetic cohesion that great teams have. I think so many of those things are necessary to be successful in business, especially in entrepreneurship in the early days. You know, my team always jokes that I use sports references all the time around the office. <laughs> we get in trouble with a lot <laughs> but, of sports metaphors around here too. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing I would say, Pete, is that I didn't have a lot of natural confidence as a kid. Like I, you know, I grew up on a small little island and I was a shy kid and sports gave me confidence because I was naturally good at sports. And then because I was good at sports and I worked hard at it, I got more and more leadership opportunities, became team captain. Those kind of experiences for me were really formidable and gave me confidence. And I think largely I chose entrepreneurship because of the confidence that I gained through playing sports. So, I mean, it's a, it's a deep web for me personally. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. It requires a heck of a lot of confidence to be able to start something, you know, completely from scratch. And I'm, I'm really kind of interested in how that happens. So, I mean, you're doing the modeling, got some exposure to the industry. And so how is that seed planted that maybe you could actually create something? Yeah, I, I'd always had the entrepreneurial itch. You know, when I came back from modeling, I, I worked for a CPA firm and I kind of learned there how businesses work. But concurrently, while I was there, I was I met a girl who was a designer. We started dating. We started our first little contemporary women's line together. It was called Sammy Joe. And, you know, on the weekends, we would drive to the garment district in L.A. and buy fabric and 
she would design things. And then we'd work with local cut and sew resources and factories in San Diego to bring these little tiny assortments of product to life. And then we'd go out on the road on the weekends and we'd sell product to boutiques. But I always had that attitude of like, let's create it. Like you look, you're a talented designer. Like I can help with the business. Like let's go out and create it. And that, I don't know where that comes from, but I've always had that mentality. So after a few years working in public accounting and having this apparel business kind of in the garage, so to speak, you know, we learned a tough lesson there that what we were doing wasn't really set up for scale and we didn't have the right infrastructure to really grow that business. So the apparel business ended up getting put on the shelf, but I left and started my first business. It was, it was called Vaco. It was a financial and IT consulting company that business, I was really lucky in my kind of mid twenties to have started that. And it got some moderate success and and showed me that, man, I can actually start something and it can be successful. You know, what I found out about eight years later is that my heart and soul wasn't hundred percent in it and financial consulting, (laughs) but it was this awesome experience for me to just show like, I can do it. Like I came from not a lot of money and I was able to prove to myself that I could be financially successful. And that was really freeing for me. But the missing link was that I wasn't aligned. My passions were not aligned with what I was doing for a living. And I've always been somebody that's had this perspective of like, I'm going to be on my deathbed. Am I going to look back and say, I took those chances. I lived the life or I at least tried to live the life that I wanted to live. And at that moment in my life, I had this time where I was like, this creative part of me wasn't being expressed. Like, yeah, I was checking the box of being able to support a family and live a good lifestyle. But was I fulfilled? Was I doing something that was aligned with my heart and my passion? And the answer was no. And so, you know, I always had this kind of itch when it came to like product and design, but I, I wasn't an artist. I didn't grow up. I wasn't one of the artsy kids. I was a kind of a jock. So in a way it was like, I was kind of put in this box as like, no, the jocks aren't creative, but I always knew there was something there. And as I got a little bit older, I started dealing with back problems and a friend suggested I try yoga. And so I started going to yoga class pretty religiously. I was in the studio every day working on healing my back. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I thought, here's an opportunity to align my passion for active lifestyle and health and wellness and sport with that creative itch that I hadn't been expressing in my day to day. And in the studio, I started observing all these guys showing up to class and I recognize that these guys are just like me. They're guys that are here because they want to invest in living a healthy, active lifestyle, but they don't necessarily identify solely as like yogis. They're here because they're runners. They like to train. They like to ski. They like to surf. And I saw this opportunity to create a brand that was very much aligned with those values. And that was the the seed that was planted that would lead to the start of Viore. That's great. It's really kind of inspiring. I mean, you know, rather than waiting for your real life to begin, so to speak, you went out and created it. And it must have been an interesting process going from the juxtaposition of being a CPA and then actually getting this creative thing about how to design I don't know. That's really unique. I've been in this business a long time. I don't know if I've ever met anyone that has the same story you do and got to the same place. I think a lot of people thought I had lost my mind, Pete, because, <laughs> you know, I had this successful company. I was young. I was, you know, entertaining people, playing golf and living a pretty good lifestyle. 
and I had tons of flexibility and done the hard part to build this business. We had 150 employees. It was a great wow. little business. That's good. But I decided I needed to leave to scratch this itch and ultimately feel fulfilled, you know, and that wasn't like a, I woke up one day and said, I'm leaving and quit the next week. That was a 12 month process of self-reflection and thinking deeply and critically about this opportunity. And that was a lengthy process that was riddled with landmines. But ultimately I just knew like I had to do this. Besides those internal voices, did you have, I mean, the flip side there, you have some people like, oh my God, you're crazy. But did you have people like, you know what, Joe, you're on to something here. And I think you're right. To, I mean, did you have those voices too, that were encouraging along the way? Or were you on an island out there on your own? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's, I think a lot of the people that were close to me thought I was a little bit like, you know, maybe it wasn't the smartest decision because the ultimate risk was like, what was I going to do, right? If I left this business I built, I wasn't going to go back to that. I, I was selling my interest to my partners. So like I, there was no way to get back into that. Yes, it was it a one-way door. I, that was it. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it didn't feel like I had a lot of tailwinds supporting me in the choice. But again, it was it was a personal decision that I needed to make. Yeah. So do, you got the idea about doing active from being involved in yoga and sports and stuff. But how did you bring that to life and do it to a real thing? Gosh, it's almost hard for me to think back to those early days. But one of the things I knew how to do was build community. I was into the San Diego yoga community. I was going to classes, taking from a lot of different teachers. And I always had this desire to give back. And so I worked alongside these yoga teachers. We created this, this concept called Live It. It was a fundraising vehicle to raise money for different causes around San Diego. And so we would have these big health and wellness, not festivals, but it was like a activation where we'd bring like 500 people together. We'd teach a huge yoga class. We'd bring in all these incredible local vendors and we'd raise a ton of money and give it back to a, a different cause every year. And we started using the name Viore to host these events. Is it a real have, word? I mean, what is it? Did you make that up or is yeah, it? So Viore means mountain in Finnish. And one of the things that I love to do when I'm not, you know, working is be in the mountains and climb mountains. And my friends and I are, we're trying to climb all the 14,000 foot peaks in California. And so that's a hobby of mine. And, but more so like when we were creating this original brand Viore, we had this idea to honor people that were doing really cool things in their lives. And so every t-shirt that we made was a collaboration with a different, what we would call a hero. And, and those to me were very symbolic and very much aligned with like a mountaineer. Cause like anybody that climbed a mountain knows that it's a hellacious journey to the top. It's riddled with obstacles, pain, suffering, it can be very difficult, but when you get to the top and you feel that inspiration come over you, like that was the spirit of the brand that we wanted to create. And, and it was all about like that, that rising up and that overcoming of obstacles to reach your goal or your peak, whatever that means to you. And to me, like, that's what we're creating here is a, you know, we're, we're, yes, we make product and, and we're very committed to making great product. But it's so much more than just product. It's about what we stand for and how we're building the business. That's super important to us. And I think as we scale and as we become more and more meaningful to people, I think when they have a look under the hood, they'll be excited and happy to see what they see. 
So, and I'm just curious what those early day journeys were. I mean, you'd been through, you had some experience, but I mean, you can create these things, but then you got to take it to market somehow. So how, how did that enter into your mind about how you were going to set up a commercial business? You know, the first thing I did was think about who could I bring alongside me that had been there before. And I think that's one of the great lessons of entrepreneurship is never be afraid to hire really smart, talented people. You know, in the early days, I didn't have a lot of money. You know, we kind of had to bootstrap this business. I was able to get a couple of my friends to give me some money. And and that was really step one. So I resigned from the company I had built and I spent a year. I'd saved enough money where I was like, I'm going in with two feet. I had a little bit of savings that would allow me to write a business plan. And then concurrently, I was working on recruiting people, you know, namely number one is a designer. And so through connections here in San Diego, I was introduced to a girl named Rebecca Bray. Rebecca is still our head of men's design today, but I had a meeting with her and instantly we, we saw the same vision for the product. It was so obvious to us where the open space was because it was product that we were looking for in the market and we just could not find from the activewear brands. Yeah. So what existed. were you wearing those days? I mean, you're doing all these active pursuits. What, what kind of brands were you wearing? I grew up with the big Nikes, the under, you know, the big brands that really defined the category. I mean, those guys created the look and feel of activewear. And Viore was all about breaking down those boundaries and doing something fresh and new. Like we say, we're a new perspective on performance apparel. And we really believe that we're from the beach of Southern California. Most activewear is inspired by urban street culture, team sport, athletics, you know, Viore is born in Encinitas, California. It's like one of the best surf towns in America. And those products that I named that, that I grew up wearing really were aspirational as a kid when I was dreaming that I was going to be the next, you know, Walter Payton. But as I got a little bit older, I realized those dreams weren't going to come to fruition. You know, my needs changed. And, you know, I really more identified as a surfer or beach person than I did a jock. And we wanted to build product that had versatility as its core principle. So whereas like you might be able to go to a certain brand for a competitive race that you're going to run and get the most compressive tight or the most high performance running short, Viore was about breaking down those boundaries, building product that was ultra wearable. Like my whole feeling was like, why does sportswear have to look like sportswear? It was stripped down from all those like bells and whistles that identified you as like that guy who's going to the gym. And it just, it was product that you wanted to live in and wear every day, but it would support you through the toughest workouts. You really touch on something because, because I'm a customer of your, I think it's great. And I always find myself, cause I got a bunch of your products. Like I'm wearing a pair of your meta pants today. They are the best pant, but like your shorts and stuff. I always think, well, are these a swim trunk or is this an athletic short or is this just a casual? <laughs> and the answer is yes, to your point on all that stuff, you know, cause normally in my closets, I have things that do specific things. Right. But That's with right. the stuff that I've bought from you guys, I think exactly to your point, there's a lot of ways to be able to wear it. And that's great. I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying about that as a, as a customer of your brand. Yeah. And honestly, people herald us as this great D to C brand. But the truth is, when we launched the business, we didn't have enough money to go out with a big performance marketing budget like some of our peers. So it was hard. You know, like I looked at some of our competitors that are in the space and I would see another press release, another activewear brand raises $25 million from XYZ institutional investor. And I was like, how are we going to compete with these guys? So we relied on wholesale in the early days. We went to gyms and yoga studios, and we went to some more sophisticated retailers. We 
tried calling you guys, you know, to not to much avail, but how did that we, go? We, <laughs> you didn't call well, me. <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't have your number, Pete. Uh, but in the early days, a lot of people didn't get it to exactly your point. They looked at our product. They're like, is this swimwear? Is it lifestyle clothing? I don't even know where I would put this on my floor. And a lot of people were just trying to address the female customer that was wearing Lululemon and walking into the store. So if they were going to get into active wear, they were thinking about the female customer first. And so you, you went initially, was, was it just men's initially with you guys? Yeah, we were 100% men's out of the gates and it didn't leave much room for us. But it was also the opportunity because, you know, again, we were trying to build a new perspective, a new take on the category. And so we were forced to kind of go all in on the D to C model because we, we knew wholesale wasn't going to support the business out of the gates. And so we were running out of money. And we realized at that point, guys, we're going to have to build this direct. Like if, th- if this is going to work, it's going to be a direct to consumer led effort. We got to build the customer first. And, and that's what we did. We took the remaining money that we had left. It was very risky. And we put it all into a digital marketing strategy. We were kind of early in advertising through social media. Did you personally know much about social media and how that all was going to work? Because again, a lot of this stuff hasn't been around forever and ever. And, and you know, you're kind of making up as you go along. Or did you hire someone that, that really knew about this stuff? No, we did not know anything about social media advertising. I don't think a lot of people did at that time. I perceived it as a very high level of risk. And, you know, in those early days, the idea of taking, you know, this big chunk of capital, which represented a big percentage of everything we had in the bank and putting it into advertising just felt insane to me. But that was probably the biggest pivot that we made that led to our success. Because it, one of the beauties of selling on the internet is what we were able to go out to those few customers that we did have in the early days and find out what they loved about the brand. We were able to learn about our customer. And one of the things we learned early on was like, they didn't necessarily identify as yogis. Like we found out they were wearing the product to chase their kids around the house, to go to the gym, to run, to do all these things. One of the last things we heard was that they were wearing it to go to yoga. And so we quickly started to massage and evolve our message. And once we figured that out, we really started to get some success. But if you were to interview my wife and ask her about those early days, she would tell you, I was, I was riddled with doubt. I mean, that was like, I I think any entrepreneur is in the early days. I was, I didn't know it was going to work. Like we didn't have a lot of success stories to hang our hat on and we were running out of money. And so it was not an easy process. Like you know, it was only six years ago that we were questioning whether or not we were going to go out of business. Was there a tipping point when you knew you had something here? I mean, there's all these dreams and ambitions, but it always seems like, you know, there is this moment where there's, oh, I think we really got something here. Did you have that moment? It's such an interesting question because, you know, Viore is not one of these brands that went out and raised a bunch of institutional capital and got a bunch of press and, you know, we didn't have like a moment on the Oprah Winfrey show or a big <laughs> celebrity that wore it to the Oscars. It was nothing like that. It was more just like one foot in front of the other. To be honest, one of the defining moments where I felt like we had something was when we entered the wholesale landscape with partners like Nordstrom. And there was a couple of those partnerships that tested the brand alongside some of the big legacy players, you know, that the brands that we had talked about earlier. And did small tests. 
And I think the moment that I was like, we are on to something is when Viore outperformed the field by a large margin on a level playing field. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's interesting. When your guys' stuff hit the floor for us, the minute salespeople in our system embrace something and personally kind of can endorse it to a customer, that's when things take off. And that totally happened for you guys. That jogger in particular, I mean, you started seeing it on everybody and hearing, you know, women around here talking about what it's the best jogger. And so if you're to go into our stores and did kind of like a secret shop and asked about a jogger, they're going to say, you should get that Viore one. I have it and it's the best. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that happen. I mean, I hear it all the time when I'm out in stores and talking to people like, tell me about how how Viore's doing. You just hit it on the head, Pete. And you know, first of all, thank you so much for all the support because that is so important. You know, those are the tastemakers. Those are the people, the gatekeepers to the consumer's mindset. And to me, partnerships like Nordstrom are so important because A, we want to be where our customer is shopping. Like we, we want our customer to find Viore, whether it's through our website or through a great partner, as long as the level of service is, is on par with expectations and the visual storytelling is great. Gosh, I mean, those type of recommendations and those that stamp of validation is so important. I'm just very grateful for the floor staff and the folks that have introduced Viore to your customer base. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a real authenticity, I think, that rings through with that. And we say that all the time, you know, if a product's great, it's going to sell. I mean, that that's where it really happens. And you guys have done just an amazing job of that. So, um, you know, you're talking about kind of your strategic plans of how you, you know, were direct to customer and then, you know, you've, you've got some wholesale partners and I know you guys are super selective about that and you've been very thoughtful about your growth plan. Sometimes with the chagrin of our people are like, let's pour on the gas right now and just blow this thing up because it's going to be big. But, you know, you've been thoughtful about it. And, you know, I was, I was reading something, an article that you were in and one of the quotes was your goal was not to sell everybody. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, you know, what people maybe don't understand in our business as, as someone that's a retailer is for years, I mean, for generations and decades, it was set up as a transactional business where there were wholesalers and the vehicle to get their stuff sold was through retailers. But then as the Internet came along, everyone had the ability to sell directly to customers themselves. And so then it became more of a subjective or elective call, whether you want to be with retailers or not and why. And you and I have talked about some of this, but I'm curious, like, you know, how does Nordstrom fit into those strategic plans around, you know, your, your clarity around our goal is not to sell everybody. The headline here is that I want to build a business that my kids will be proud to work at one day. I have a very long-term mindset to building this business. And, you know, I feel like the fashion graveyard is riddled with brands that grew too fast, sold to everybody, built these monolithic empires, and then just crashed and burned. And I really want to be intentional about building a business that means something. And I think in order to do that, we've got to really control the distribution You know, we've got to make sure that like when somebody has an experience with Viore, whether it's through our website or one of our stores or it's through Nordstrom, that they're having a really great experience. And that to me is why we've chosen Nordstrom. I mean, since I was a kid, you know, my family's been shopping at Nordstrom and I've just always been so inspired by how you guys put the customer first. And, you know, I told you right out of the gates when you invited me to be on this podcast, I just told you, I'm like, I love this. Like the fact that you guys are piercing the corporate veil a little bit and like letting people get to know you and see how you think. I think that's really cool. 
I, I think Nordstrom's in a great position from the standpoint that you you've always prioritized great service, but in today's day and age, customers just have so many choices. So I think it's never been more important to like have a really curated, really beautiful presentation on your floors, having great reasons to shop with you versus going elsewhere. And I can just share from my experience that I think you guys are willing to be in the conversation. You're willing to listen to what's important to us. And, you know, in the early days, it's, it's easier because you're, you're pushing stuff into the channel. You're begging Nordstrom, give us a chance, give us a chance. Now, pretty much every large department store in the U S is interested in doing business with us. So we say no a lot. We want to nurture the businesses that we're already in, but our value is to be in great relationships with the people that we choose to be in business with. And so that to me is, again, aligned with a lot more long-term mindset to running our business. It's aligned with our belief that we should stay in control. And so my hat's off to you guys. Your team has been exceptional to work with. And, um, you know, we're really excited about the future. Well, we, so, we appreciate you guys, too. So, uh, you know, tell me something. You know, you, you, we talk about these D2C brands. I think, you know, to your point, the the landscape is littered with all these things that haven't necessarily worked well. They've, they've had a great idea and a concept, but they don't play out. And one of the things that's unusual about you guys, when you look at these kind of rocket ship, like exciting D2C brands, the one thing that they tend to miss is that they're not profitable and they need some kind of crazy scale to figure out how to get profitable. So I'm interested in how you view scaling and the fact that you guys are profitable like pretty early on. I mean, I'm a CPA by trade. We talked about that. You know, maybe I'm a little conservative by nature, but the idea of raising substantial amounts of investor capital and then just spending it all on growth always felt irresponsible to me. You know, we're not a company that has an addressable market the size of Ubers or Microsoft or Amazon, you know, I mean, we're, we're in the clothing business. And at the end of the day, like while there is a large TAM for our space and category, and we do sell things through the internet and that was exciting and new, it's a new way of introducing products to consumers, but you know, there's a, there's a cost to acquire a customer, right? So a lot of people think like, well, why would you sell through a wholesale partner when you can just go sell to them the direct and make a bigger margin? But that's a very nearsighted philosophy. Like at the end of the day, you can open a website, list a bunch of wonderful products. And on your first day, if you do nothing to drive traffic to that site, you, you won't sell a product. Right. So call it the wholesale margin that you would give to a wholesale partner. Oftentimes you're spending that or more to drive that customer or enough customers to your site to look at your product and get a couple of them to convert. So there's a cost to running a D2C brand. So for me, kind of going back to your question, I wasn't great. I, I'd never built an apparel company. I'd never built a tech company. So for me to go to market and tell a big financial institutional investor that I was going to be the guy that, that took on Lululemon, it just felt like very far-fetched. I mean, I tried, you know, and got a lot of no's. I mean, it was like, it was very deflating because I would talk to investor after investor after investor and people passed over and over again. I felt like I was like, you know, telling people that I was going to be the next Rolling Stones and they should give me a <laughs> shot and, and back me on tour. Like it was, it was, people looked at me like I was nuts. So it, it was really hard. And instead of going back to the investment community time and time again, like a lot of our peers did, we were focused our energy on great relationships with our supply chain. And we were fortunate to build really great partnerships with folks that 
believed in what we were doing. They loved the product. They saw the vision for the brand and they backed us. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't have the rigidity of a lot of DTC brands when they come out. So this is all we're ever going to do. And this is exactly how we do it. It's, it sounds like you've had a thoughtful approach of how to grow your brand using whatever vehicles serve your, your purpose. And, your, and you know what I mean? Like the, the, almost all those D2C guys at a certain point end up contacting us or something because it's hard for them to get scale. And to your point about right. attracting customers, and this is one thing I'm really kind of interested in is, you know, since you've been at Nordstrom and you're at some other big players too, but I mean, particularly like with, with us, you know, one of the things we talked about early on is, just being in our store alongside all this other stuff and selling, it's going to help your brand recognition in ways that would be super expensive to try to buy your way into. Have you noticed that, that you've been able to get more recognition just because you're, you're in our ecosystem now? 100%. You know, I think, I think it's a balanced approach, you know, and I think every part of the engine contributes to the overall success. I think wholesale is a big part of our success. I think customers tell us all the time they found the brand at Nordstrom or they found the brand at XYZ retailer that we hear that anecdotally all the time. And I hear from other D to C pure play D to C founders all the time. They, they call me and they're like, Hey, we're now thinking about a wholesale strategy. Like, how did you do it? And a lot of these guys back themselves into a corner from a pricing right. standpoint, or they're not on the right commercial calendar to sell into wholesale effectively. And, and we knew from the very beginning that wholesale would be a part of this business. So I, I, I think that's a large part of our success. I really do. So you talked a little bit about these other companies you compete against, and they, they've got backing and, and equity injected in their business. Well, you've recently had that. I mean, it was, that was a big story, you know, like, whoa, boom, $400 million, you know, investment in, in Viore. Tell me what that was like and, and how, how you guys are putting that to work. The brand is growing very fast and it's growing at a pretty significant scale at this stage. And so largely this was a secondary offering. That money that SoftBank invested went to buy shares from existing stockholders. It didn't go to the company. You know, we did so that. So just gave your, to... your shareholders some liquidity. Is that essentially what happened? Yeah. So it was an opportunity for us to reward some of those shareholders that believed in it. You know, going back to, you know, the Rolling Stone analogy, like, we had guys that wrote checks and believed in kid with a vision for an apparel brand. And ultimately it was like one of the proudest days to be able to give them a great return. Yeah. I mean, you kind of bootstrap this thing up. So when you say that you're paying off investors, is it like family and friends and people that, you know, just had some belief and confidence in you? Yeah. One of our first investors was a guy named Mike Persall. He's one of my best friends. He has a small family office called ABP Capital. They made an investment in the business along with a, a group of my friends from college, really, and a small subset of other guys that were friends of friends. And when I think about the fact that we've been able to raise these amounts of money, generate these great returns for our investors while maintaining control of our destiny and our outcome, people, you know, I haven't been through this a lot, but people do tell me that that's unique and, and it's something I'm really proud of. It's, it's always been really important. Yeah. You just, you just kind of answer one of my questions. Like how do you define success future back? And you talk about something that your, your kids could be proud to be associated with and, and maybe work at someday. I mean, that, that stuff provides a lot of clarity. I get it. I think that's great. So, you know, I know you, you've got a family and stuff. You're, you're a really thoughtful guy. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, how you're balancing your personal and your family life with all of what's happening with this brand, the demands on your time. And really, 
the pull of what that is and how is it complementary to your life rather than at odds with your life? Oh man, maybe we should connect offline on this one and, and you can give me some tips on how you're um, doing it. You know, I got pretty young kids and it's really been great. And that really helps ground me. And my kids are nine and 11. I mean, you know, you come home and like, okay. I mean, you know, they're all this other stuff is interesting, I guess, but it, <laughs> this kind of grounds me. So I've, I've actually really appreciated you know, particularly in, in challenging times when you, when I have that family. So I'm just curious how that works for you. Oh, 100%. I've got young kids. My oldest is five and my youngest is two, both girls. And I think without them, I would be probably a bit out of balance and, and granted like work-life balance. People love to talk about these days. How do you find balance? The reality is like, I, I really believe there's no substitute for hard work. And I think if you really want to be successful, sometimes you do have to become a little bit obsessive with whatever it is that you're trying to get off the ground. And I think that's totally okay. But the key for me is having a practice of awareness to know when I've gone too far and, and be able to pull myself out of it. But it's definitely not, it's not easy, but to your point, it's like you go home and you spend a little bit of time with your young ones and it's like everything comes into focus. It's like, it's very clear what's ultimately really important in this life. And I feel very blessed to have them because they do keep me very much in check. That's great. Hey, look at Joe. I mean, I, I really appreciate your time. I'm I'm super impressed by what you've accomplished. You know, I'm a fan. I, I just admire your approach and it, it is refreshing. And I, for one, am standing here cheering you guys on. I think what you're doing is fantastic and you got a great company. Thank you, Pete. I'm honored that you had me on today. It's always really great to chat, whether we're on a podcast or just jumping on a call. You guys have always been so receptive and open and been just fantastic partners. So thanks so much. And obviously really excited about what the future holds. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna come down and visit you in Encinitas. I mean, back to our San Diego comment. That's a good place to be, particularly right about now, as you're familiar with from being up in the Northwest. It's a lot of 43 <laughs> degrees and raining up here right now. So. Uh, I know, but, but I do miss the season, so you got to embrace yeah. those. All right, Joe, you're the best. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I'm going to look you up down there one of these days. If you're ever up here in town, you let me know. Yeah, look forward to it. Okay, Thanks, take care. Guys. Bye. So this morning, we're going to talk about what is probably the most beloved story of the third generation of Nordstrom, and we we affectionately call that the monkey story. But this is one of those things that they love this story because it kind of happened to them. And I remember, Jamie, I don't know if you remember this, they would talk often about if a meeting's not going well, just pull out the monkey story. Yes. And so this happened in the 60s. And it centers around children's shoes. And there were some things we did in those days. We had monkeys in our stores. You're going to hear about that. But you also had like the fluoroscope deal where kids would stand up on some elevated thing and we'd have like an x-ray machine yeah. to show how the shoes fit. Just blast them with radiation. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope the statute of limitations are over on that one for damages. But yeah, we, we stopped doing that as well. But I think it's reminiscent. It's interesting that there's always been this culture about doing things that would engage customers and make them happy and compel them to come visit us. So with that, I'm going to let Jamie tell the famous, it's not infamous, it's famous monkey story. So 
in the early 60s, I think it was, my grandfather, Elmer, had an idea to have monkeys in the shoe department because kids love monkeys, <laughs> I, supposedly. You know, now that you're telling the story, though, Jamie, isn't it true that somewhere we've got, like, videotape of your dad telling the story. Is that right? Yeah, we do. He, in fact, not too long before he passed away, we were opening a store and you get all the new employees together and, you know, a few Nordstrom leaders give talks about what the company's all about. And the Nordstrom culture is directly tied to the monkey story. Yes, and so, you know, they, my dad was there and, you know, they gave him the mic and he started talking for a few minutes about customer service and all that. And I think quickly went to the monkey story. Okay, so one second here, Jamie. We're going to jump over and actually listen to some audio from your dad, Jim, telling the story in the 90s at some point at an employee meeting. How many people here are new? Ooh, that's great. My goodness. I remember when we were really a small company, and, and I reflect back on when it was, you know, you guys think you have it tough. When we were doing it, we had to do everything. For example, when... Uh, in kids' shoes, you'd go in and they had fluoroscopes, and you could stand in them, and you could turn them on, and you look and you could see the bones in your feet wiggle and everything. <laughs> terrific, and there was a terrific attraction for the customers in children's shoes because the kids liked to. Do. Well, the doctors got up in arms and said, "Frying all the kids' feet." In, in the <laughs> so you got to get rid of those machines, and they were illegal. My dad was in charge of children's shoes, so he said, "God, what am I going to do to attract these kids? I don't have the machine anymore." So he decided he'd get monkeys, live monkeys. Kids love monkeys, and uh, kids can't drive themselves to the store, so they would convince their parents, take me to the store because I want to see the monkeys, and we would sell them some shoes. So there was actually there was a cage in a few of the stores hanging from the ceiling, and there'd be a monkey or two in there. And you may think we're cheap now. He was really cheap. And, and he was so cheap that he would say, oh, we'll get a male and a female. Put them in, and then we won't have to buy any more because we'll just, you know. A lot of mommy, what are those monkeys doing? What's happening there? And every now and then, a mother would say, "What are those? What are those monkeys doing?" I, oh, lady, you know. <laughs> yeah, and if you had two males in there, they'd start throwing stuff at each other and potentially customers. And they're filthy monkeys too. They're fifty bucks. They're cheap, awful monkeys. So it wasn't a perfect thing, but the kids loved the monkeys, and I think the the shoe salesman kind of put up with them. But you had to take care of them, and we used to have to clean the monkey cage. Oh, they were, and they'd get out, and they hated us, and we hated them, and they'd bite us. And Yeah, so we didn't have, like, a third party of experts to come and take care of these monkeys. We bought these monkeys. Yeah. We put them in there, and then, like, if you were the shoe department manager, your job, part of your job was to feed and care for the yeah, monkeys, Yeah, you right? had shoe salesmen taking care of monkeys, <laughs> uh, which is, God, what a horrible situation in retrospect. One of my favorite monkey stories, my brother John was opening a shoe store in Yakima, Washington. Little towns over the mountain pass from Seattle. And the day before the store opening, uh, he calls my dad, his brother, and says, I'm in a real bind. I ordered some monkeys, but they haven't shown up. You gotta bring me some monkeys from the stores in Seattle. Because, you know, when we open a store, and this is true today as it was, you know, 50 years ago, that if you're going to open a Nordstrom store, it's got to be the full thing. You got to have, you know, all the inventory, you got to have, you got to be hired up, obviously. And all the little nuances that make a Nordstrom store great have to be there. And if that means monkeys, you got to have your monkeys. So I'm sure when John was there the day before and didn't have his monkeys, he was probably panicked. And, you know, my dad was going to be going over for the store opening anyway, and he goes, 
sure, I'll stop by the Bellevue store and I'll grab those monkeys and I'll, I'll bring them over. So at the end of the day, uh, my dad and my mom and then a guy they worked with for a long time, Jack McMillan and his wife, drove to the Bellevue store. In Jack had a Falcon, Ford Falcon station wagon. Horrible car. We would barely go uphill. There was no monkey transport system besides no, it sticking w- it in your own car. It was, it in your car. You know, John was panicked. And they go, we just got to go in and grab a couple monkeys real quick, throw them in the car, and then we're going to drive over to Yakima. We drive to the store. We get a cardboard box out. Okay, I, he's got the box, and I'm going to grab the monkeys and throw them in the box. <laughs> they get the box ready. They open the cage. And these monkeys are mean little mother you-know-whats. And these, <laughs> these are vicious little things. Filthy monkeys in this case. <laughs> and they're biting in there, get one, you know, get the second one in the box. By the time I grab, go to grab the third one, they all get out. Running all over the store, making lots of noise, throwing shoes around, and they're swinging from the <laughs> ceiling. And Jack and my dad are running around chasing these little monkeys. We couldn't get them, and they're up high. It took them a couple hours uh, to get the monkeys because it was probably about a you know a 10,000-square-foot store and stock rooms. And so these monkeys are everywhere. And now it's getting to be around midnight, right? We haven't left yet, and our wives are not happy. They finally get the monkeys and they stuff them into the box and they get them and they take the box out to the car where my mom and Jack's wife were were waiting. They're like, where the hell have you been? Well, we had a little problem getting the monkeys, but we got them now. So they stick the box in the back of the station wagon, but the box is too big. So the back tailgate thing won't close all the way. So they got to like leave it halfway open and, and get some string and hold it down. So off they go, driving to to Yakima, and it's a snowstorm on Snoqualmie Pass. Drive over the pass. Jack's got these chains. It's snowing. The chains break. You know, have you ever done that? We go about a mile. Bam, bam, bam. We've got to get out and fix them. And these monkeys are in the back of that car the whole time in this box. They're they're cold, (laughs) and they're screeching and making those horrible monkey sounds. And and my parents would describe it. It was just it was like eight hours of sure hell. And it takes them forever. It takes them all night to get to Yakima. They, they literally show up at like 6.30 the next morning because they had to drive so slow and there was so much snow and everything. So they finally get to Yakima. We show up. We're filthy, dead tired, no sleep. And it's, you know, it's the big grand opening of the new Nordstrom Shoe Store in Yakima. We said, John... He said, yeah, what are you guys doing here so early? He said, well, we got your monkeys. He said, oh, I forgot to call you. My monkeys showed up. <laughs> Absolute. <laughs> Absolute true story. Yeah, I mean, this whole monkey thing, I mean, it's just such an amazing story. And again, it's so reminiscent of doing anything you can do to have an engaging and compelling customer experience. And this was deals for the kids. And so I don't know when the monkey thing went away. That may have represented the end. You know, there is some history to this. and, And somebody we know personally had a neighbor who told them, I ended up with one of the Nordstrom monkeys. Because at some point, probably in the late 60s, I'm sure the shoe salesman finally started to get just fed up with taking care of these monkeys and said, that's it, we're, uh, we're done with the monkeys. And so we had to find homes for them. And I think it sounds like a couple of customers adopted them. <laughs> and somebody in Bellevue ended up with one of the monkeys. And I, I don't know. I, I never saw the monkeys or, or was around them. But to hear my dad talk about his visceral hatred for these monkeys, I'm not sure if it was just because of this story, trying to take them to Yakima or chasing them around a store. But m- my dad got a lot of 
mileage out of telling that story, not just to employees. And your point, you know, whenever a meeting was getting a little stale, he would uh, he would pull out the monkey story and he'd have people <laughs> rolling. But uh, he told that story to you know all of his friends, and uh, it it took on a bit of a life of its own. And I've heard it played back to me by people who've heard it third or fourth hand, and it's been embellished a lot. Yeah. Uh, the truth is, it was just a miserable night for two couples <laughs> driving around, uh, driving from With Seattle a to Yakima, of monkeys in their station wagon, just screeching and yelling, and <laughs> it was just awful uh, as they just describe it but we can all laugh about it now well that's the show we're really glad you're with us on this journey and we hope you keep listening the easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the nordy pod wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there please take a minute to give us a like share and a review so other people can find this thing too for more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, or maybe that time when the anniversary sale came along and you completely overspent your budget and you put yourself in a credit predicament, we want to hear about that too. So send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with the athletic director at my very own alma mater, the University of Washington, Jen Cohen. You have to publicly fail every single day and find the courage to get back up and keep going. That's why I'm so passionate about committing myself to sports. I think it just can teach these values that are not being taught in other places anymore. This conversation really means a lot to me because I used to play sports and I've been able to bring tons of the lessons I've learned into the rest of my life. So join us next time on the Nordy Pod. <laughs>